Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is Pearl Harbor. In our own personal lives, we've all had ideas that really seemed great in our heads, but turned out to be disasters. That was the situation for the Japanese in Pearl Harbor. It seemed like a really good idea, but turned out to be their biggest mistake of the war. For those of you not familiar with that term, Pearl Harbor is one of the greatest natural harbors in the world. It's located on the island of Oahu in the state of Hawaii. Ever since 1908, Pearl Harbor has been a naval base for the United States. The term Pearl Harbor used to only mean a place. That term has now become an event, meaning the surprise attack by the Japanese on December 7, 1941, which brought the United States into World War II. Let's get into the first issue. Why did the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor? We have to start with a little background. What was going on in Asia in the years leading up to the attack? The short answer is that Japan was creating an empire in East Asia. Japan is an island nation and has very few natural resources. In the first half of the 20th century, Japan had become an industrial country, but the Japanese did not have the raw materials for their industry and could not completely feed themselves. They were importing most of their raw materials and a lot of their food. In the 1930s, the military was in control of the Japanese government. Most of the high-ranking members of the army and navy felt that the future for Japan was to create an empire to supply enough food and raw materials for the Japanese economy. Long before the clash between the United States and Japan, the Japanese military had been creating an empire in East Asia. In the early part of the 20th century, Korea was controlled and protected by the Japanese. This ambiguous status was resolved in 1910 when Japan annexed Korea. Japan completely governed Korea up through the end of World War II in 1945. The Japanese were also expanding into China. If you look at a map, you might wonder how a small country like Japan could take on an enormous country like China. It's because China was very unstable. The Chinese Civil War started in 1927. On one side were the Chinese nationalists, and on the other side were the Chinese communists. The divisions in China made it weak and susceptible to the Japanese. In 1931, Japan conquered the Chinese province of Manchuria. But the full-scale war between Japan and China started in 1937. The war in China would continue until the unconditional surrender of the Japanese to the Allied nations in August 1945. Some people argue that World War II began on July 7, 1937, when Japan and China went to war. It's true that this was a massive war with tens of millions of casualties, but I side with the people who fixed the start of World War II as September 1, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. It's not that the war in Asia didn't count, but when the Germans invaded Poland, it turned the war into a global conflict. Because the invasion of Poland eventually engulfed most of Europe in the war, and the European war had a great effect on the war in Asia. 
you have to keep in mind, this was the time of European empires. And three European empires come into play here. The British Empire, the French Empire, and the Dutch Empire. I'll bet some of you were surprised when I mentioned the Dutch, right? Yes, the tiny Netherlands had an empire which is significant to today's story. The Netherlands had an enormous colony called the Dutch East Indies. It was a giant archipelago of over 17,000 islands south of Indochina and stretching between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. In 1949, the Dutch East Indies became an independent country, the Republic of the United States of Indonesia. Today, Indonesia is the most populous Muslim country in the world with a current population of over 270 million people. On May 10, 1940, Germany invaded France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Before the end of the month, Germany had conquered the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. It didn't take them much longer for them to conquer France either. The French signed the armistice with Germany on June 22, 1940. Right now you're wondering, why is he talking about this? What does this have to do with the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor? It's because the German conquests in Europe provided the opportunities for the Japanese in Asia. The French Empire included the French colony of Indochina. That's the area that now consists of the countries of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. With the collapse of France, the Japanese saw an opportunity to occupy French Indochina, which they did starting in September 1940. By the summer of 1941, the Japanese consolidated their hold over French Indochina. In July 1941, over 125,000 Japanese troops invaded the southern part of Indochina and set up further bases. The stationing of troops in Indochina posed threats to the British military base in Singapore and the American military stationed in the Philippines. In response, the United States froze all Japanese assets in America. This was a tremendous blow to the Japanese foreign trade. But the biggest problem was that Japan was now cut off from most of its oil. I've read different percentages, but it was somewhere around 80% of all of Japan's oil was being imported from the United States. Late July 1941, when the oil embargo took effect, is the point most people describe as the Japanese having two options. They had reached a fork in the road. Option number one was to give in to the U.S. demands and pull out of Indochina as well as China. This would open up trade and imports again and Japan would have enough oil and other natural resources to fuel its economy. But it also meant the Japanese would be giving up their dreams of empire. Option number two is the one that the Japanese government chose, which was to go to war with the U.S. and the British Commonwealth and to conquer vast areas of Asia and the Western Pacific so that the Japanese would have access to their own oil and other raw materials. For some reason, the Japanese did not consider a third option. Seize most of those regions with the raw materials that Japan lacked, in particular oil, but don't attack the United States. The Japanese needed critical raw materials from the Dutch East Indies, 
French Indochina, and the British colony of Malaya. The main resources that the Japanese needed from those regions were oil, rubber, and tin. The Japanese attacked the American Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor because they believed that the U.S. would not stand for further Japanese expansion. But I've always wondered why they thought so. If the Japanese conquered British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, the U.S. government certainly would have been very, very upset. But would America have gone to war with Japan over those conquests? I think the answer is no. I base this answer on what happened up until that time. America did not join World War II until it was attacked. The U.S. did not enter the war to save two of its closest allies, Britain and France, when those two countries were at war with Nazi Germany in the spring of 1940. As much as President Franklin Roosevelt and his administration wanted to help Britain and France, the American public was overwhelmingly against entering World War II. If the U.S. did not enter the war when France was being overrun and Britain was barely hanging on, why would the U.S. enter the war because of the loss of British and Dutch colonies in Asia? Yes, there would be further tensions between the U.S. and Japan, but if the Japanese thought that they could operate their military with those natural resources from those colonies, along with the other regions they had already conquered, the Japanese would have been in a strong position. And for anybody listening to this episode in the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, or South Africa, I am not acting as a selfish American and saying that such a strategy would have been a good thing. Obviously not. Besides being bad for those British Commonwealth countries, it would have been terrible for the U.S. in the long run. I'm just pointing out that in the summer of 1941, the U.K. was barely holding on against Hitler and somewhat busy dealing with his inept ally Mussolini. British Commonwealth forces were stretched very thin in Europe, the North Atlantic, and Africa. If the Japanese simply seized Malaya but did not actually threaten Australia, New Zealand, or India, would the British Commonwealth countries go to war to win back Malaya, or would they simply be on the defensive, protecting Australia, New Zealand, and India? So why didn't the Japanese do this? Why didn't they just seize the areas with the necessary raw materials and simply avoid a war with the U.S. and hopefully the British Commonwealth? Why not just wait to see if America declared war on Japan if the Japanese occupied the Dutch East Indies and Malaya? Two reasons. Number one, the Philippines. Here's a brief synopsis of the Philippine situation in the fall of 1941. In 1898, there was a short war between Spain and the United States. After the U.S. victory, Cuba became an independent country and the U.S. was awarded various Spanish territories. That's how Puerto Rico and Guam became part of the United States. The U.S. also obtained possession of the Philippines. The thought was always that the Philippines would be granted independence, but this did not actually occur until 1946 after World War II ended. In late 1941, the U.S. had significant military forces stationed in the Philippines. Using one of my favorite toys, Google Maps, the straight line distance from the Philippines to Japan is a little over a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Besides the proximity of the American military installations in the Philippines to Japan, the Japanese were also worried 
that if they conquered the Dutch East Indies or other territories in that vicinity for oil, rubber, etc., that the natural resources would have to be shipped past the Philippines to get to Japan. This meant that the shipping lanes for these critical materials to Japan would be vulnerable to attacks from American forces based in the Philippines. This is why the Japanese thought that it was too risky to not attack the United States. Reason number two, the Japanese were basing their decision on their own history. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were a lot of disputes between Japan and Russia. As a result, the Japanese launched a surprise attack against the Russian naval base in Asia, which was located at Port Arthur, which is now in China. After this surprise attack, the Russians sent a large fleet all the way from the Baltic Sea in Europe to Japan. When that occurred, the Japanese scored an overwhelming victory over the new Russian fleet in the Battle of Tsushima Strait. After that victory, a negotiated peace was reached at the Treaty of Portsmouth in the state of New Hampshire. President Teddy Roosevelt acted as the mediator between Japan and Russia and, as a result, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906. In 1940 and 1941, the highest levels of the Japanese government and military saw the war with Russia as the blueprint for how to deal with the United States. Step one would be a surprise attack to destroy the American Pacific Fleet. Step two would be to consolidate a strong defensive position and then annihilate any counterattacks by the United States. The Japanese believed that a strong and extensive defensive perimeter far from the Japanese home islands would make it very difficult for the U.S. to defeat Japan. The military leaders in Japan believed, or maybe just hoped, that if the U.S. Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor was completely destroyed, that Americans would look at the prospect of a long and bloody war with Japan and not have the will to conduct such a war and simply sue for peace. Now let's discuss the planning of the attack. Long before the freezing of assets and the oil embargo in the summer of 1941, the Japanese high command viewed the United States as their most dangerous potential enemy. They were developing war plans against the U.S. for a year before the Pearl Harbor attack. The plan to attack Pearl Harbor was called Operation Z. Although there were still chances to avoid a war with the U.S. throughout the fall of 1941, the Japanese had essentially decided on their course in the summer of 1941 essentially for two reasons. Number one, the economic sanctions and oil embargo I just explained. Number two, Operation Barbarossa. On June 22, 1941, Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa. That was the Nazi invasion of the USSR. This was the largest invasion in the history of the world. Approximately three and a half million Germans, along with approximately 700,000 Axis allied troops, swarmed into the Soviet Union. The reason I'm bringing up Operation Barbarossa is the effect it had on Japanese leaders. Up until then, they were worried about a possible war with the Soviet Union. Once the Nazis invaded the USSR, 
the Japanese no longer had to be concerned about a war with the Soviets. Joseph Stalin had his hands full simply trying to survive the German onslaught. This freed up the Japanese to take on the U.S. By the way, throughout this episode, I refer to the Pacific War as mostly being between Japan and the United States. This is not to diminish the incredible contributions of the British Commonwealth nations in the war against Japan, and of course, the fact that the Chinese carried a huge burden in the land war against the Japanese. The reason I'm focusing on the American entry into the war after Pearl Harbor is because that is when Japan's fate, and by fate I mean defeat, was completely sealed. Anyway, getting back to the attack on Pearl Harbor. The man who masterminded the Pearl Harbor mission was Japanese Admiral Isuroku Yamamoto. He had studied in the U.S. before the war. He studied English at Harvard, and he later served as the Japanese naval attache in Washington, D.C. Yamamoto understood America's industrial capabilities. Yamamoto did not think Japan could win a long war with the U.S., but if his country was going to go to war against America, he would plan the best attack he could. So step one was to destroy the American Pacific Fleet. We always think of the Pacific Fleet as being stationed at Pearl Harbor, but before 1940, the U.S. Pacific Fleet was stationed in California. The Pacific Fleet was moved to Pearl Harbor in 1940 to act as a deterrent to further Japanese expansion. It was erroneously believed by American military leaders that Pearl Harbor was essentially impregnable for two reasons. Reason number one, the geography of Pearl Harbor. It has a fairly narrow entrance. I just measured it on Google Maps. The ability to measure distances on Google Maps is one of my favorite features. Anyway, according to Google Maps, it's only about 1,500 feet or around 460 meters across the channel entrance. This meant that it was easy to guard against a surprise attack from a foreign navy. In the middle of Pearl Harbor is Ford Island. In 1941, the battleships would be anchored along the southeast side of Ford Island. Sometimes two battleships were anchored side by side. This area was called Battleship Row. Fortunately for the Japanese, there was a harbor in Japan which was geographically similar to Pearl Harbor and the Imperial Japanese Navy trained there for the attack on Hawaii. Reason number two that American leaders thought that Pearl Harbor was completely secure was its location in the middle of the Pacific, far from any place else. Fun fact, Hawaii is the most isolated population center in the world. The closest landmass is the United States mainland, which is about 2,400 miles away or about 3,900 kilometers. Military leaders believe that Hawaii was simply too far from Japan for any surprise attack. The straight line distance from Japan to Pearl Harbor is over 3,800 miles or over 6,100 kilometers. Going full speed in a straight line would take approximately five days to reach Hawaii. Certainly, a giant naval task force would be discovered before it reached the Hawaiian Islands. This was the first hurdle cleared by Admiral Yamamoto and his staff. How were they going to get an armada across the Pacific from Japan to Hawaii without being detected? The answer was taking a roundabout route at a particular time of year. 
They chose December for the attack because there was very little naval traffic in the North Pacific in the winter. There were a lot of storms and heavy seas, but not too stormy like there would be starting in January. The Japanese charted most ships that traversed the North Pacific for the prior 10 years and discovered that very few, if any, traveled in the winter in the northern reaches of the Pacific. So that was the time of the year for the attack. How about the route? The Japanese task force assembled at Hirokapu Bay in the Kuril Islands, north of the four primary Japanese islands. They departed on November 26, 1941 and headed primarily eastward around the 42nd parallel. This kept them pretty far north in the Pacific. This is how they were able to avoid any enemy warships or even fishing boats or merchant ships. Once they were almost directly north of Hawaii, they turned south. This roundabout route took approximately 12 days to reach the launch point. Now that you know the route taken, let's describe the ships. Yamamoto assigned all six of the fleet carriers in the Japanese Navy. That term fleet carrier means the biggest and fastest of the aircraft carriers. There were also battleships, cruisers, and destroyers in the attack fleet, but it was the aircraft carriers that were going to do the actual attacking. The admiral in charge of the Pearl Harbor attack force was Vice Admiral Chiuchi Nagumo. Before the task force had set out, a group of large Japanese submarines had already been sent to Hawaii. Five of those submarines carried many submarines with them. I'll describe those later. Admiral Yamamoto was a talented commander and developed a brilliant plan. But sometimes people give him credit with creating the idea of attacking surface ships with airplanes. It was actually an American who first proved this concept. General William Billy Mitchell is regarded as the father of the United States Air Force. He was an early proponent of air power. He famously said that nothing can stop the attack of aircraft except other aircraft. Billy Mitchell believed that the age of battleships was over and that aircraft could sink even the most formidable battleships. In July 1921, he proved it by using a captured German battleship called Ostfriedland, which was considered unsinkable. Mitchell and the 1st Provisional Air Brigade sank the battleship using only aircraft. And you have to remember how primitive airplanes were in 1921. Amazingly, the US military and apparently the rest of the world failed to understand what Billy Mitchell had proved. Most countries still thought that the battleships reigned supreme. It was the British who proved Mitchell's theory in actual combat. In November 1940, France had already surrendered to the Nazis. Britain was barely holding on along with its empire and the British Commonwealth nations. Today, we look back at the Italian military in World War II as a joke, but Benito Mussolini had actually built a formidable navy in the Mediterranean. The Italians had a large naval base in the city of Taranto in the southeast portion of the Italian peninsula. On the night of November 11 and 12, 1940, the British launched 21 swordfish planes from an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean. These were obsolete biplanes like you saw in World War I. They launched torpedoes and dropped bombs. 
Three Italian battleships had been damaged so much that they were inoperable, along with several other ships which were sunk or badly damaged. For some reason, this incredible raid by the Royal Navy is largely overlooked, but this is where Admiral Yamamoto got the idea for Pearl Harbor. Now let's go on to the next topic. What happened on December 7, 1941? The task force set out from the Curiel Islands on November 26, 1941. Early in the morning on Sunday, December 7, the task force was at the launch point approximately 200 miles or 320 kilometers north of the island of Oahu. The Japanese sent both bombers and torpedo planes to attack Pearl Harbor. The problem with torpedoes in this instance is that Pearl Harbor is fairly shallow. It's only about 40 feet or 12 meters deep. When torpedoes are dropped from aircraft, they need somewhere between 75 to 100 feet of water. Otherwise, they go right to the bottom and get stuck in the mud. In the months preparing for this attack, somebody came up with the idea of adding wooden fins on the back of the torpedoes. This prevented them from going too deep in the water so they would not get stuck in the mud under Pearl Harbor. Unfortunately for the American Navy, the wooden fins worked. One problem with torpedo planes is that they could only hit ships which were exposed to the rest of the harbor. Some of the American battleships were not exposed like that. On the day of infamy, none of the three aircraft carriers assigned to the Pacific Fleet were in Pearl Harbor. I'll discuss that later on. But all eight of the Pacific Fleet's battleships were anchored at Pearl Harbor on December 7. They were the USS California, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Nevada, Maryland, West Virginia, and Tennessee. You may have noticed that all of those names are states. I think that was kind of a cool system that the Navy had in those days. All battleships were named after states. Cruisers, which were one level down from battleships, were named after U.S. cities. Destroyers were named after people, and submarines were named after types of fish. Aircraft carriers had no rhyme or reason with regard to their names. In addition to the eight battleships I just mentioned, there was a decommissioned battleship at Pearl Harbor on that day called the USS Utah. It had been an active battleship up until 1931 when it was demilitarized and converted into a target ship. It was not located on Battleship Row with the other battleships. It was on the other side of Fort Island. Even though it was just a target ship, the Japanese still hit it with torpedoes which caused it to capsize. The hulk of the Utah remains in Pearl Harbor and there is a memorial near the wreckage. In addition to the eight battleships, there were also eight cruisers and 29 destroyers in Pearl Harbor on December 7. Seven of the battleships were anchored along Battleship Row on the southeast side of Ford Island. The eighth battleship was the USS Pennsylvania, which was in dry dock in Pearl Harbor for repairs. All right, let's describe the actual attack. The air raid was carried out in two waves. The first wave of over 180 planes was launched from the Japanese carriers at approximately 6 a.m. They arrived at Pearl Harbor between 7.50 and 7.55 a.m. The first pilots that reached Pearl Harbor radioed the signal Tora, Tora, Tora. In case you're wondering what that means in Japanese, Tora means tiger. 
Torah was the code word to the rest of the Japanese Navy that they had achieved complete surprise on the Americans. They launched their torpedoes and dropped their bombs. Remember how I said that some of the battleships were lined up two by two? There were four lined up that way on December 7. The Maryland was anchored near Ford Island and the Oklahoma was anchored next to the Maryland. Right behind those two ships, there were the Tennessee anchored near Ford Island, and the West Virginia anchored next to the Tennessee. This meant that the Maryland and the Tennessee could not be hit by torpedoes, but could only be bombed. But the exposure of the Oklahoma and the West Virginia to the open part of Pearl Harbor meant that they were perfect targets for the torpedoes. According to the U.S. Navy, the Oklahoma was hit by either five or six torpedoes. The Navy states that the West Virginia was hit by at least seven torpedoes. The West Virginia sank. In one of the most memorable and tragic events of that day, the Oklahoma completely capsized. Although many of the men had jumped off the ship when it was rolling over, more than 450 men were caught below decks and were now trapped in the capsized ship. How were they going to get out? Rescue crews tried to get to the men trapped inside the overturned Oklahoma. The problem was trying to cut through the approximately one quarter inch of steel in the ship's bottom. If that doesn't sound like much, try cutting through solid steel with handheld tools. Think about those poor guys who were stuck inside the Oklahoma. You're in pitch darkness. There are no lights. You know that there is a limited amount of air in whatever compartment you're in. The men grabbed any metal objects they could find and banged on the bulkheads so that rescuers could find them. Even when they cut through the bottom of the ship, the rescuers did not automatically get to where the men were trapped. Sailors were trapped throughout the overturned Oklahoma, not just the bottom, which was now on top. After two days of cutting through the hull of the ship, only 32 men were rescued of the approximately 450 that had been trapped inside the Oklahoma. At the time of the attack, there were nearly 1,400 officers and sailors on the Oklahoma. 429 died as a result of the Japanese air raid. The California and Nevada were each anchored by themselves along Battleship Row. Torpedoes hit the California and it sank. The Nevada is significant because it was the only battleship that got underway. Bombs hit both the Maryland and Tennessee. Remember, they were anchored between Ford Island and other battleships and so could not be hit by torpedoes. They were both damaged by the bombs, but neither one sank. The Arizona had a smaller ship, the USS Vestal, anchored next to the Arizona, which blocked the torpedoes. It didn't matter. In the most famous incident of the Pearl Harbor attack, two bombs hit the Arizona. One hit the rear and did not deliver a critical hit. But the other bomb pierced the forward deck of the Arizona and went straight through to the magazine. If you're not familiar with that term, the magazine is the part of a warship where the ammunition is stored. When the single bomb exploded, it detonated all of the enormous shells and gunpowder which were stored on the Arizona. This is why the Arizona had by far the largest explosion of the day. The explosion was so powerful, it lifted the 33,000 ton vessel and essentially blew the ship in half. Fires burned for two days. Of all the people who died in the Pearl Harbor attack, 
almost half of them were on the Arizona. 1,177 officers and crewmen were killed on the Arizona that day, and only 335 survived. The USS Arizona was built during World War I. At the ceremony when they laid the keel in March 1914, Franklin Roosevelt was in attendance. Why was FDR there? Because during World War I, he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President Woodrow Wilson. The Arizona was launched a little over a year later in 1915 and was named for the newest state in the Union. Arizona had only become a state three years earlier on February 14, 1912. In addition to the battleships, Cruisers, destroyers, and other smaller ships were also damaged in the attack. Besides their own navigational tools, the Japanese pilots followed the broadcast from a radio station in Honolulu. Following that transmission led them right to Pearl Harbor. Most people think the Japanese fired the first shots of the Pacific War between the U.S. and Japan. Not true. The first shots were fired by an American destroyer, the USS Ward. At around 6.45 a.m., before the bombing started, somebody on the ward saw a periscope near the entrance of Pearl Harbor. It was one of the Japanese mini-submarines. The American destroyer opened fire and sank that mini-submarine, killing the two men on board. They reported this to the authorities in Pearl Harbor, but for the next 60 years, there was a lot of skepticism as to whether or not the ward actually sank a submarine. But in 2002, the mini-sub was discovered on the ocean floor with a hole through its conning tower. This proved that the men of the USS Ward were right and that they had scored the first hit of the war between the US and Japan. When the USS Ward made its report about the sinking of an enemy submarine near the entrance of Pearl Harbor, this should have set off alarm bells, but it didn't. If the people in authority had taken this report seriously, the Army and Navy could have been in battle stations when the Japanese planes arrived. There was another potential warning which was also missed. Radar was new in 1941. It was not nearly as sophisticated or worked as well as radar does today. But there were radar bases in Hawaii. Just after 7 a.m., two Army radar operators on the north side of the island of Oahu detected unusual air activity approaching the island. They reported this finding. However, the officer that received the report told the two radar operators not to worry about it because a group of American B-17 bombers were coming to Oahu that day from California. It was true that B-17s were due from the mainland. In fact, they were part of another tragedy. After a long flight from California, 12 Army B-17s arrived at Pearl Harbor during the Japanese air raid and some were severely damaged. Getting back to the radar operators. As you could probably guess, what they discovered that morning were the Japanese planes. If this report had been relayed to the proper commanding officers, the Army and Navy could have had approximately 30 to 45 minutes to get planes in the air and to get all of the ships and shore batteries ready. This was a major missed opportunity. Earlier, I told you that there were five mini-submarines launched by the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor. These were small vessels approximately 78 feet or 24 meters long. They only held two men and were very cramped. They carried two full-size torpedoes in the front. 
The object was to enter Pearl Harbor, fire their torpedoes, and theoretically turn around and leave Pearl Harbor. A survivor from one of those mini-subs explained that they knew they were on suicide missions. He also explained that none of the 10 men on those subs had volunteered. They were all assigned. Only one of the mini-subs is conclusively known to have entered Pearl Harbor and made an attack. It fired one of its torpedoes at the USS Curtis, a seaplane tender. The torpedo missed the ship, but the Curtis then fired on the mini-submarine and hit it with a 5-inch shell. The USS Monaghan, a destroyer, was heading in that direction and aimed to ram the mini-sub. The two-man crew in the sub fired their second and last torpedo at the Monaghan, but missed. The USS Monaghan then rammed and depth charged the mini-sub, sinking it and killing both members of the crew. After dropping their bombs and torpedoes onto ships and airfields, the first attack wave returned to the six aircraft carriers. The second attack wave, which consisted of approximately 167 to 170 planes, arrived over Pearl Harbor. The American forces were now on full alert. The first attack wave had the element of surprise. Remember a few moments ago when I told you that the Nevada was the only battleship to get underway? In the first wave of the Japanese attack, the Nevada was hit by a torpedo. Repairs were made and the Nevada began moving and was trying to get out of Pearl Harbor. However, it was bombed in the second attack wave of planes. Several bombs hit the Nevada. The captain was worried that the battleship might sink in the channel and block the entrance to Pearl Harbor. So he beached the Nevada at Hospital Point inside of Pearl Harbor. The Pennsylvania, the battleship which was in dry dock, was also bombed during the second wave. By around 9.15 or 9.30 a.m., the Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor was over and the planes were heading back to the six aircraft carriers. In addition to attacking the fleet at Pearl Harbor, the Japanese also struck the airfields on the island of Oahu. Both the first and second attack waves bombed and strafed American planes on the ground. American military hierarchy never seriously considered an air raid on the American air bases in Hawaii, but they were concerned about sabotage. Because of that, they parked their planes wingtip to wingtip so they would be easier to guard from would-be saboteurs. Unfortunately, this closely packed positioning made the planes easy targets for the Japanese and meant that machine gun fire and bombs did more damage. All of the American airfields on Oahu were attacked, 188 American planes were destroyed, and another 159 were damaged. The original plans for Operation Z had called for a third attack wave, but Admiral Nagumo canceled the third wave. He was worried that the Japanese did not know where were the three American aircraft carriers and that they might appear and strike the Japanese fleet. In essence, he thought he had achieved a great victory without losing any of his ships and he should go home. It certainly appeared that the Japanese had obtained a tremendous success. The Japanese had damaged or destroyed 19 American ships. All eight of the battleships were out of action. The California, West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona had all been sunk. The Maryland, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania were damaged but not sunk, and the Nevada was beached. Most of the American military aircraft had been destroyed. The American death toll from the air raid was 2,403 people, which included military personnel and civilians. 
Compare this to the very minimal losses to the Japanese. They lost only 29 aircraft, all five of the mini-submarines, and 129 Japanese died in the attack. Supposedly, upon being congratulated about the incredible success of the Pearl Harbor attack, Admiral Yamamoto replied, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. It is a fabulous quote, and I wish that he had actually said it. But in reality, we have no written evidence that Yamamoto said those awesome words. The quote first appeared in the 1970 film about Pearl Harbor, Torah, Torah, Torah. We don't have any evidence that Yamamoto gave that superb quote. The day after the Pearl Harbor attack, FDR went before Congress on December 8 and asked for a declaration of war against Japan. Here is the most famous clip from that speech. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. A couple of things about that speech. FDR wrote it himself. His speechwriters were out of town, so he dictated to his secretary. She typed it up and gave it to him for revisions. He looked at the first line, which originally read, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in world history. He crossed out world history and handwrote infamy. It's one of the most famous phrases in any speech in American history. In photos and video of President Roosevelt giving his Day of Infamy speech, you can see that he is wearing a black armband on his left arm. Most people think that the black armband was for the thousands of Americans killed in Pearl Harbor. Not true. FDR had been wearing that black armband ever since his mother died three months earlier. I live in Los Angeles. When people visit from out of town, I have to take them to the tourist attractions. One such tourist attraction is the Walk of Fame. That's that part of Hollywood Boulevard with the stars on the sidewalk with the names of celebrities. Also on Hollywood Boulevard is the famous Grauman's Chinese Theater. That movie theater opened in 1927 and is sometimes used for movie premieres. It's most famous for the footprints and handprints in the cement in the forecourt in front of the theater. This tradition started in 1927 when silent film star Norma Talmadge accidentally stepped into some wet cement. This gave the owner, Sid Grauman, an idea and he started having other celebrities put their footprints and handprints and sign their names in blocks of wet cement in the forecourt. The reason I bring this up in today's episode is because of the footprints and handprints of the famous comedy duo Abbott and Costello. If you're not familiar with them, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello made many movies and had a hit TV show and were incredibly popular in the 1940s and 50s. Supposedly, they were the highest paid entertainers in the world during World War II. When I have taken out-of-town guests to the Chinese theater, I always show them the portion of cement with the footprints and handprints of Abbott and Costello and point out the date. It's December 8, 1941. 
I presume that this had been scheduled well before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but I've always tried to imagine the chaos on Hollywood Boulevard on that day as most of the country was coming to grips with the fact that America was now in World War II. Anyway, getting back to the declaration of war on December 8th, it was only against Japan for the simple reason they were the only country that had attacked America. But three days later, on December 11, 1941, Hitler, remarkably, declared war on the U.S. He wasn't bound to do so as part of his alliance with Japan. The Japanese had not coordinated their attack on America with any forewarning to the Nazis. Anyway, Hitler declaring war on the U.S. meant that America was now involved in the war in Europe as well as the Pacific. So what were the results of the Pearl Harbor attack? In short, it was the beginning of the end for the Axis powers. Winston Churchill knew this immediately. He said that when he found out about the Pearl Harbor attack, he went to sleep that night and slept the sleep of the saved. He understood what this meant. With America now in the war, with all of its industrial might, there was no doubt of the outcome. The United States famously became the arsenal of democracy. American factories produced planes, ships, tanks, trucks, rifles, shells, and all of the other necessary items to wage war on a scale never seen before or since. Within six months of the Pearl Harbor attack, the Japanese were defeated in the epic Battle of Midway. After that, the Japanese were never on the offensive again and were slowly but surely rolled back in the Pacific by overwhelming American force. And on mainland Asia, the Japanese were ground down by British and Chinese forces. All right, time for some myth busting. I'm not a big conspiracy guy. There's an annoying conspiracy legend about Pearl Harbor. There are people out there who claim that President Roosevelt knew about the oncoming attack by the Japanese and purposely allowed it to happen. The claim is that FDR was anxious to get the U.S. into World War II before Britain and or the Soviet Union fell to the Axis powers. I was an attorney for 31 years. I can give you the technical, legal term for this conspiracy claim. Bullshit. Here are my arguments against this ridiculous conspiracy. Argument number one. Too many conspiracy theories are based only on motive. Did Roosevelt think that the U.S. needed to get involved in World War II before the U.K. and the USSR fell? Of course he did. He was right in his assessment that if the British and the Soviets were conquered, America was going to be surrounded by enemies. The U.S. and Canada would be isolated in North America. The Axis powers would consolidate their control throughout Europe and Asia, as well as North Africa. Australia and New Zealand might become indefensible. My answer to this argument about FDR having a motive is, so what? Just because somebody has a motive doesn't mean that they did it. Here's an easy example. Let's say you have a famous hardcore dispute with somebody because they had an affair with your significant other, they screwed you over in a business deal, or for whatever reason. If that person is found murdered, you would not think that it was remotely fair if you were arrested and convicted simply because you had a motive to kill that person, right? You would be screaming that there was no evidence showing that you actually committed the crime. The same thing applies here and in most conspiracy theories. The conspiracy people just love to point out motives but don't supply any evidence. 
In the case of FDR and Pearl Harbor, there simply is no evidence that Roosevelt or anybody in his administration knew of the December 7 attack and covered it up so that it would happen. Argument number two against the conspiracy theory. American officials did not know where the Japanese would attack or when. The conspiracy people point out that the U.S. government and military had broken Japanese codes and were aware that war seemed imminent. It's true. War did seem imminent. But where and when? The American military hierarchy and government personnel believed that if Japan attacked the U.S., it would be in the Philippines. Remember earlier when I explained how close the Philippines are to Japan, as well as the sea lanes between Japan and the areas with raw materials like the Dutch East Indies? In American military circles, it was always presumed that the attack would occur in the Philippines. I explained earlier how U.S. officials believed that Pearl Harbor was essentially impregnable, mostly because of its location. Most Americans who considered the matter thought it was impossible for a fleet of warships to travel all the way from Japan to striking distance of Hawaii without being discovered. And it wasn't just Americans who held this position. When Yamamoto proposed a surprise attack on Hawaii, the other high-ranking members of the Japanese Navy, as well as the Japanese Army, believed that it was impossible because nobody believed that an enormous armada could travel thousands of miles all the way to Hawaii without being detected. The other Japanese officials only agreed to the plan because of Yamamoto's absolute insistence and the fact that he was considered indispensable. In case you're wondering, the Japanese did attack the American military bases in the Philippines about 10 hours after Pearl Harbor. Argument number three against the conspiracy theory about FDR allowing the Pearl Harbor attack to occur. Messages were sent from Washington, D.C. to Pearl Harbor and all American bases throughout the Pacific. The conspiracy people like to claim that the Roosevelt administration concluded that war was imminent with the Japanese, but that the government did not warn the military. That is simply not true. A message was sent from Washington to Pearl Harbor to be on the alert. But this was 1941, and the communications equipment was not like it is today. Atmospheric conditions made it impossible for a direct transmission to Pearl Harbor that day. So they sent the message via telegraph through Western Union. Admiral Kimmel received this message after the Japanese attack had already begun. I'd like to make two points about this. First, if the president and his administration were going to allow the attack to occur, they would not have sent any message that day. They could not have known the exact time when the air raid would occur, so a telegraphic message the morning of December 7 would have been a terrible idea if the Roosevelt administration was truly trying to allow the Japanese to succeed. The second point is that there already had been warnings sent to Pearl Harbor and other bases in the Pacific on November 27 and December 3, 1941. Here's the critical language sent by the Navy Department on November 27, 1941. This dispatch is to be considered a war warning. Negotiations with Japan looking towards stabilization of conditions in the Pacific have ceased and an aggressive move by Japan is expected within the next few days. The number and equipment of Japanese troops and the organization of naval task forces indicates 
an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines, Thai or Kra Peninsula, or possibly Borneo. Execute an appropriate defensive deployment preparatory to carrying out the tasks assigned in WPL 46. That was the Navy's war plan. And on that same day, here's the critical language sent by the Army. Negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated to all practical purposes with only the barest possibilities that the Japanese government might come back and offer to continue. Japanese future action unpredictable, but hostile action possible at any moment. If hostilities cannot, repeat cannot, be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. This policy should not, repeat not, be construed as restricting you to a course of action that might jeopardize your defense. Prior to hostile Japanese action, you are directed to undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as you deem necessary. Then... On December 3, 1941, the Chief of Naval Operations sent this message to all Pacific bases. Highly reliable information has been received that categoric and urgent instructions were sent yesterday to Japanese consular posts at Hong Kong, Singapore, Batavia, Manila, Washington, and London to destroy most of their codes and ciphers at once and burn confidential and secret documents. Simply stated, the claim that authorities in Washington, D.C. did not warn Pearl Harbor and other Pacific military leaders of an imminent war with Japan is simply a lie. Argument number four against the conspiracy theory that FDR allowed the Pearl Harbor attack to occur, even with warnings, military disasters sometimes occur. A warning is one thing. A proper response to the warning is something else. Here's the most famous example. In May and June of 1941, Joseph Stalin was receiving warnings that Nazi Germany was amassing millions of men along the border of the Soviet Union for an invasion. Soviet intelligence had named the probable date for the invasion, yet Stalin didn't believe it. As a result, when Operation Barbarossa was launched on June 22, 1941, the Soviet forces were caught completely unprepared. Most of the Soviet Air Force was destroyed on the ground instead of being in the air ready to fight the Luftwaffe. Within the opening weeks of the attack, hundreds of thousands of Red Army soldiers had been captured and thousands of Soviet tanks had been destroyed. Nobody would claim that Stalin purposely allowed the German attack. There would be no reason for Stalin to allow an attack to affect public opinion. He was an absolute dictator and did not have to worry about public opinion. The point is that even with clear and somewhat obvious warnings, militaries are sometimes caught by surprise with devastating consequences. And finally, Argument number five against the conspiracy theory about FDR allowing the Pearl Harbor attack to occur, the aircraft carriers were not purposely spared. One of the big claims from the conspiracy enthusiasts is that President Roosevelt and all of the other villains were willing to sacrifice the eight battleships because they knew that the battleships were no longer the most important part of the Navy. 
but FDR and his accomplices made sure to save the three aircraft carriers which were assigned to the Pacific Fleet. The conspiracy fans love to point out that all three of the U.S. carriers were not in Pearl Harbor on December 7. It's true that the American carriers were spared that day, but there was nothing nefarious about it. In December 1941, the Navy had seven aircraft carriers. Four of them were assigned to the Atlantic. Those were the Yorktown, Ranger, Wasp, and the brand new Hornet. The other three carriers were assigned to the Pacific Fleet. Those were the Enterprise, Lexington, and Saratoga. Let's start with the Saratoga. That ship was nowhere near Hawaii. On December 7, the Saratoga was just pulling into the Naval Station in San Diego. And before that date, Saratoga had been at the Puget Sound Navy Yard in Bremerton, Washington. The Saratoga had been in dry dock in Washington State for major upgrades. Certainly, Japanese spies in Hawaii would have noticed that the Saratoga had not been in Pearl Harbor for many weeks before the December 7 air raid. This was not a last-second ploy by the FDR administration to save the Saratoga. How about the Lexington? On December 5, 1941, the Lexington was sent from Pearl Harbor to the American military base at Midway Island. The purpose of this trip was to deliver airplanes to Midway to be prepared for a possible Japanese attack. As Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet, Admiral Husband Kimmel had ordered the Lexington, along with some cruisers and destroyers, to ferry those planes to Midway. So, do the conspiracy devotees really think that Admiral Kimmel would have been part of such a sinister plan? After the beating at Pearl Harbor, Kimmel, along with General Walter Short, who was the commander of the Army Forces on Oahu, were the two big scapegoats. They were both relieved of their commands. Their careers were ruined, and they were known throughout the U.S. as the people to blame for the Pearl Harbor catastrophe. So does anybody really think that Admiral Kimmel would have taken the fall for Franklin Roosevelt or whoever purposely allowed the Japanese to bomb Pearl Harbor? The third and final aircraft carrier assigned to the Pacific Fleet was the Enterprise. The reason the Enterprise was not in Pearl Harbor on the day of the air raid was because it had been sent on a mission to deliver aircraft to the American base at Wake Island. Again, this was on the orders of Admiral Kimmel. The Enterprise, along with some cruisers and destroyers, had left Pearl Harbor on November 28, 1941. In fact, the Enterprise was on its way back to Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attack occurred. The Enterprise was due back in Pearl Harbor by December 6, but was delayed because of a massive storm in the Pacific. So, if some dark and sinister forces high up in the American government were conspiring to allow the Japanese to sink the battleships but save the aircraft carriers, would they really have scheduled the Enterprise to return to Pearl Harbor the day before the Japanese attack? It's always extremely difficult to disprove conspiracy theories because you are trying to prove a negative. But for the reasons I just outlined, there is nothing to this wacky claim of a treasonous plot. While I'm dispelling myths about the Day of Infamy, let me discuss the claim by Japanese apologists that it was not supposed to be a surprise attack. 
This is also utter nonsense. The specious argument is that the Japanese ambassador in Washington, D.C. was supposed to deliver a message to American Secretary of State Cordell Hull on December 7, 1941. The Japanese ambassador met with Cordell Hull at 2.20 p.m. in the Secretary of State's office and handed Hull a memorandum from the Japanese government. There is a six-hour time difference between Hawaii and Washington, D.C., so this would have been 8.20 a.m. in Pearl Harbor, meaning the air raid had started about a half hour earlier. The long memorandum from the Japanese government, commonly called the 14-part message, listed all of Japan's good intentions and proposals for peace and blamed the United States for the failure to reach a resolution in Asia. The 14-part message finishes as follows. Obviously, it is the intention of the American government to conspire with Great Britain and other countries to obstruct Japan's effort toward the establishment of peace through the creation of a new order in East Asia, and especially to preserve Anglo-American rights and interests by keeping Japan and China at war. This intention has been revealed clearly during the course of the present negotiation. Thus, the earnest hope of the Japanese government to adjust Japanese-American relations and to preserve and promote the peace of the Pacific through cooperation with the American government has finally been lost. The Japanese government regrets to have to notify hereby the American government that in view of the attitude of the American government, it cannot but consider that it is impossible to reach an agreement through further negotiations. It is true that the statement from the Japanese government was supposed to be given to the American Secretary of State before bombing commenced in Pearl Harbor. It was given to Secretary Hall about a half hour after the air raid already started because it took a long time for the ambassador and his staff to decode the document and type it up to present to the Americans. My reply is this, so what? If this note had been given to the American Secretary of State before the bombing started, would the Japanese have been justified? Obviously not. Point number one, this was not a declaration of war. This was simply a note saying that the Japanese government was breaking off negotiations. This was certainly not a declaration of war. In fact, it wasn't even a notice that diplomatic relations were being severed. Point number two, even if the timing worked out like the Japanese had intended and the Secretary of State had received a message from the Japanese before the planes arrived over Pearl Harbor, this would still be a sneak attack. Even if this had been a declaration of war, handing a foreign government a notification that the two countries are now at war moments before an air raid is still a sneak attack. And remember that the Japanese Armada had left Japan 12 days earlier, they had already decided on this course of action, but scheduled to give some sort of a notice to the United States moments before the killing was set to begin. So what happened to the ships involved and the mastermind of the attack? Let's start with Admiral Yamamoto. Throughout the war, U.S. intelligence regularly broke the Japanese codes. In the spring of 1943, they discovered that Yamamoto would be flying to the Solomon Islands on a particular date. American fighters intercepted Yamamoto's plane and shot him down and he died on April 18, 1943. The name for this American mission to shoot down Yamamoto was Operation Vengeance. 
That's a pretty appropriate name for a mission to kill the architect of the Pearl Harbor sneak attack. Of the six Japanese aircraft carriers that launched the raid on Pearl Harbor, four were sunk by planes from the American aircraft carriers during the Battle of Midway on June 4, 1942. They were the Akagi, Kaga, Soryu, and Hiryu. That meant four of the six aircraft carriers were sunk within six months of the Pearl Harbor attack. The other two Japanese aircraft carriers were not at Midway. The Shokaku was sunk by torpedoes from an American submarine during the Battle of the Philippine Sea on June 19, 1944. The last of the six Japanese aircraft carriers from the Pearl Harbor attack was the Zuikaku. It was sunk by American aircraft on October 25, 1944 at the Battle of Cape Engano in the Philippines. What about the eight American battleships that were bombed and torpedoed on December 7? Six of those battleships, the California, Nevada, Maryland, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, were all salvaged and made seaworthy and sent to the west coast of the U.S. for repairs and upgrades. They all rejoined the fight and all served and survived the remainder of World War II. The USS Oklahoma was the battleship that capsized. It suffered too much damage to be saved, but it was blocking too much of Pearl Harbor and had to be removed. The salvage project did not begin until mid-1942 since it was understood that the Oklahoma could not be repaired. The Navy concentrated first on salvaging the battleships and other ships that could be repaired and put back into action. During late 1942 to early 1943, cable anchors were installed into the hull of the Oklahoma. The cables were attached to 21 large winches that were mounted on Ford Island. Large patches had to be installed to make the hull watertight so it could be refloated. The Oklahoma was finally afloat in November 1943. Everything useful, which included guns, machinery, and remaining ammunition, was removed from the Oklahoma. After the war, in late 1946, the remainder of the Oklahoma was sold to a metal scrapping firm. However, in 1947, as the hull of the Oklahoma was being towed from Hawaii to the American West Coast, it sank in a storm. That leaves the only other battleship which could not be saved the USS Arizona. The U.S. Navy decided to leave the broken hull of the Arizona where it had sunk in Pearl Harbor. The superstructure and guns were removed. If you ever go to Hawaii, I would strongly recommend that you go to the island of Oahu and visit Pearl Harbor. The USS Arizona Memorial is incredibly moving. It's designated as a national landmark. The memorial is built over the top of the remaining wreckage of the Arizona, but the memorial straddles the ship. It does not touch the sunken ship. You can look down at it, and it is still leaking oil over 80 years after it was bombed. That's because the Arizona once held about one and a half million gallons of oil, and it is believed that there is still approximately 500,000 gallons of oil within the hull stored in more than 200 different compartments. You might be wondering, why don't they remove the oil from the Arizona so it stops polluting Pearl Harbor? Two reasons. Number one, to remove all of the oil would probably require the total destruction of the ship. Number two, it would also require removing the remains of the deceased crew members. Nobody wants to do that. This is considered a cemetery, a final resting place for those who gave their lives on December 7, 1941. The reason the deceased were left on board was because of the 1,177 officers and crewmen who were killed on the Arizona that day, 
more than 900 could not be recovered because they were essentially cremated in the blast and resulting fires. Fires burned on the Arizona for more than two days. It's estimated that the temperature from this fire was much hotter than the lava that flows from the volcano on the big island of Hawaii. Any crew members who were assigned to the Arizona on December 7, 1941 were given the right to have their ashes placed into the sunken Arizona when they died. 43 survivors of the Arizona have opted to have their remains placed onto the sunken ship. Only 93 men who were aboard the Arizona on December 7 survived. Another 242 Arizona crewmen were on shore at the time of the attack and lived. The bell from the Arizona survived. You can find it today at the University of Arizona. Many people look at the devastation from December 7, 1941 and think that Pearl Harbor was a disaster for the U.S. It was a tragedy, but not a disaster for America. However, it was a complete catastrophe for the Japanese because of two massive mistakes. Mistake number one was the strategic implementation of the Japanese offensive against Hawaii. Strategically, their biggest mistake was not destroying the dry docks and oil facilities. If they had done so, the U.S. could not keep the fleet in Pearl Harbor, but would have had to retreat all the way back to California. It would have been much tougher to conduct offensive operations in the Western Pacific when all missions had to be launched from California. Mistake number two was much bigger, and that was not understanding the American psyche. As I outlined earlier, it's my opinion that if the Japanese had bypassed the American military in the Philippines and in Hawaii, I don't believe that the U.S. would have declared war on Japan, even if the Japanese had expanded into the Dutch East Indies and British Malaya. The American public was still very isolationist before December 7, 1941. Most Americans sided with the British Commonwealth, the French, the Chinese, and the other allied nations, but not enough to enter the war. The Japanese did the one thing that could unite Americans and bring America into the war, and that was to attack the United States. Added to that insult was the fact that it was a sneak attack with no declaration of war. Although Admiral Yamamoto probably didn't say it, the quote attributed to him was very accurate. The Pearl Harbor attack had awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. That's it for today. Reviews greatly help. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, it's easy to do. Scroll down the History Analyze show page, select a rating, hopefully five stars, and then tap Write a Review. If you're listening on Spotify or other podcast apps which allow ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Please tell your friends, relatives, coworkers. Word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for History Analyzed. Check out my website, historyanalyzed.com. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.